From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The transformation of Australia to a low-carbon, clean, green economy is one of the nation's major challenges in coming decades. The Albanese government has made big promises on climate and energy, but inevitably the difficulties of delivering them are now becoming very apparent. It's putting new heft into its efforts, with Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen announcing a big expansion of its energy capacity scheme to encourage investment in renewable energy generation and storage. Minister Bowen joins us today to talk about progress on the energy transition and also to look forward to the COP28 climate conference, which he will attend in coming days. Chris Bowen, we'll get to the COP meeting later, but can we first unpack where we're up to in the energy transition? The government has recently admitted things are not on track for your target of having 82% of our electricity generated by renewables by 2030. How much difference will the expansion of your scheme to underwrite investment in renewables make and why has it been difficult to attract adequate investment? So, Michelle, um, I think the best way of characterising and explaining our current situation is we're doing well but not well enough. And uh, we have huge interest in Australia as an investment destination for renewable energy. I mean, I've had a cavalcade of global chief executives and chairs of big renewable energy companies uh, from around the world through my office over the last 12 months. And most tell me, some say we are the most interesting, the best market in the world. Some say we're in the top three, but there's huge interest. But um, what we weren't seeing is fast enough translation of that huge pipeline uh, to final investment decision and planning approval and and connections. So we have good potential and you know great interest and and lots of you know very serious and real projects in the pipeline and under development, but not hitting final investment decision uh, and not uh, hitting the planning system and getting through the planning systems with various planning systems, state and federal and. AMO connection approvals fast enough. And so the capacity investment scheme is designed to really provide that really welcoming and reassuring environment to global investors. Uh, and it will uh, it will uh, attract that investment and even more than attract it, confirm and hasten the investment that we're already seeing and ensure that we are on track uh, for that very important target, a target that's important for emissions, for costs and for reliability. But of course, that doesn't necessarily speed up the actual approval process, does it? Well, it does. It does ensure that it gets to final investment decision uh, more quickly, um, which then gets it to the planning system more quickly. And of course, the CIS uh, auctions was a very important part of what we announced, a major part of what we announced. But we also announced announced other elements, including most particularly renewable energy transformation agreements with the states and territories. Uh, and that's really to ensure that the goodwill, and there is very goodwill between me and the state and territory ministers and the governments, uh, translates to ensure that our policies are working hand in glove to ensure the transition is working as quickly as it can. Now, that can include... Uh, it will include reliability schedules, which we might come to, but it'll also include transformation schedules, which is, well, how is what we're doing underwriting this investment working with your state planning system? You know, we don't want to, you know, I was very frank with state ministers when I was consulting and briefing them on all this. 
you know, we don't want to underwrite all this investment and then find it stuck in your state planning system, for example. Um, and so we'll work with them on those transformation schedules, which may involve some states looking at their planning systems. And let me be very clear, Michelle, that doesn't mean being, you know, more lax or, or getting rid of conditions because not every renewable energy investment is in the right place at the right time. But it does mean getting to yes or no more quickly. And if it's if the answer is going to be no from the planning system, let's get there much more quickly so that then the developer can move on to other projects and the community can have reassurance. And if it's going to be yes, let's get there more quickly as well. And uh, you know, Tanya Plibersek and I are looking at the federal uh, environmental approvals. Tanya in particular has been looking at that. Um, but the you know, bulk of uh, renewable applications go through the state systems. And so we will work with states to see where sensible and where states can do better. Um, I'm sure that they want to. Now, on the question of reliability, you and the market operator, AEMO, have talked about how gas could be essential in balancing supply. Yet the investment uh, scheme that you've expanded excludes gas and gas isn't supported by all of your state colleagues. How do you expect to resolve this obstacle? So let me, let's just step back a moment and just talk briefly about the role of gas in the transition because it is important. Now, people say, oh, gas isn't low emissions. Well, that's true. I, I don't regard it as a low emissions fuel. But I tell you what, when a gas-fired power station isn't turned on, it's low emissions. And the beauty of gas-fired power stations is, is that you can turn them on and off, which you can't do with coal. You know, coal-fired coal power stations are burning away all day, every day, whether we need the energy or not. Um, and gas-fired power stations won't do that. So that's why I see a bigger role of gas-fired power stations going forward, so that when we don't have enough renewable energy in the system, AEMO can turn a gas-fired power station on and off really quickly, which you can't do with a coal-fired power station. And when it's turned off, as I said, it's zero emissions. Now, in terms of uh, the role that gas plays, no, gas is not included in our capacity investment scheme. It is included, for example, in the New South Wales Altessa scheme, which complements our federal scheme. But I've got to tell you, Michelle, gas isn't winning auctions compared to uh, renewable energy uh, bids. But the role of gas will vary from state to state and territory to territory. Now, as I said, uh, we don't think we don't need to underpin gas through the capacity investment scheme. That's not to say that there isn't a role for gas and states will come at that and the private sector will come at that in different ways. There's the Talawara um, gas fire power station, which is nearing completion. That's by and large private sector uh, money, um, a small government contribution, but mainly private sector money. Um, states have got some gas-fired power stations which will reach the end of the natural life. They, when they're writing their re reliability schedule with us, as I said, I, don't, I make no apologies for pointing out gas has a role to play, mainly to be that flexible backup. Every state will have a different approach to reliability and working with the private sector to uh, an 82% in the first instance renewable energy system. But that doesn't mean the Commonwealth needs to underwrite that gas. That means we do respect and encourage its role to underpin this massive transformation to 82. Also on gas, Victoria is running out of it. Now, this week you announced securing additional gas from Queensland for the domestic market. How do you see that gas getting from Queensland to Victoria? The pipeline capacity appears pretty limited and there's been little progress with shipping facilities. Yeah, we do have a very substantial pipeline network, but it does... Um, come under pressure from time to time. It does get full. One of the issues we had the winter before last, you'll remember that crisis, was that the, we were getting gas to the south as fast as we could through that pipeline, and pipelines were, were full at key points. Um, but 
uh, I don't see that as the major challenge. The bit, the major challenge, frankly, is Michelle, that gas use in Australia is declining, but gas production is declining more quickly. I don't think a lot of Australians sort of have looked at the fact that the Bass Strait is depleting quite rapidly, so we're getting less and less gas out of the Bass Strait, which means we need to fill that gap. And anybody who says we don't need to fill that gap needs to explain what they would do about it. Now, they might say uh, electrify more. Well, we have a gap even with our electrification policies. They might say uh, stop exporting. Well, I'm sorry, there's a constitution, which means the Commonwealth government can't come in and rip up you know, written and signed contracts for exports. So we've got to fill that gap. Now, um, we are doing things with EMO and through the state and territory energy ministers about gas storage and, and there's various facilities um, around and we're given AEMO more powers. Um, there are various proposals for gas import terminals and you are correct. I think you've sort of correctly identified that um, those import terminals aren't actually mainly about bringing in gas from overseas. They're probably a misnomer. They are about bringing gas in from around Australia to various points. But yeah, from time to time, our pipeline comes under pressure, but that isn't the main pressure. The main pressure is working out where we get this extra gas from. And that's why the deals that we've announced this week, uh, and it was disappointing the Greens moved to disallow the gas code, which has seen these deals come forward to ensure that this new gas is for domestic supply, have been important and will continue to be important. We should note that that disallowance, of course, didn't succeed. Correct. Now, now um, in terms of the, apart from investment and the issues we've canvassed there, uh, what are the main remaining barriers to achieving this uh, clean energy transition in the immediate term? Community opposition to wind farms and to the new grid seems to be right up there. How do you think you're going with this? And if, in the end, the community opposition is just overridden, will this leave a, a sour taste in these communities that could translate electorally, do you think? So um, let's just look at this issue. I think um, I mean, community, uh, what we call social licence, community support is really important. It's never going to be unanimous. You're never going to get, you know, 100% agreement to anything, let alone big new uh, installations of renewable energy or tra or transmission. But um, I look at it this way. There are very genuine and valid community concerns which need to be taken on board and worked through on the various projects. There are also politicians who are, in effect, climate change deniers like Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan who whip up some of that concern for their own political purposes. I have very, very little respect um, for that approach to politics from them, but I have real respect for the genuine concerns in communities. The community consultation sort of regime that's been in place for many years that we inherited, and it's not actually, this is not mainly a, a criticism of the previous government, more just an observation over many, many years that our community consultation regime was not fit for purpose for the major sort of uh, works that we have underway. So we have begun the process of reforming that. I've changed the what's called the RIT-T rules on on transmission, for example, um, to improve them. I've also asked Andrew Dyer, who's the Energy Infrastructure Commissioner, to advise me and states on what more we can do uh, better on community engagement. We I see it in different ways. Um, you know, nobody can force a solar farm or a wind farm uh, on, a, on a, a farm or a, a rural property that doesn't want it. Uh, that doesn't, that regime doesn't exist. Um, where a farmer 
either sells or leases their land for one of those purposes is because they've made a decision they want to uh, because they like the uh, non-drought uh, dependent uh, income, the non, you know, the, the income that comes in even if there's a drought on. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't work with communities to ensure broader community support. As I said, it's never going to be unanimous, but we will do our best to try and get that better engagement and real community benefit as well. I don't want to see communities saying, well, you know, the country benefits from this, but we don't. I do want to see real community benefit as well. Now, households obviously are stressed at the moment on uh, cost of living issues more or less across the board, but particularly their power prices. How do you see power prices playing out over the next couple of years? What will be the general trajectory, do you think? I think we're certainly, um, you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that wholesale prices are down so much. Wholesale prices have at various points been 71% lower than the same time last year. Now, uh, before your listeners say, we don't pay wholesale prices, I know that uh, and I respect that, but they do flow through to retail prices in due course uh, to a degree. Uh, there are sort of various inputs to retail prices and wholesale prices are a big one. And there's two reasons why wholesale prices are down so much. One is the government's coal and gas caps, which we legislated, and the other one is re- uh, renewables have been performing really, really well in the grid, which has been dragging down prices. In fact, prices have been negative for big chunks of uh, many days uh, and that sort of puts downward pressure on wholesale prices which will ultimately mean um, there's downward pressure on retail prices Um, and the more orderly and the faster we can get this transition uh, the better prices will be and the more orderly the world energy situation is and you know I'm not here to predict what's going to happen in Ukraine or the Middle East but a, a statement of fact the more orderly the world energy market is the better it is for our energy prices as well. You released a climate statement uh, this week, and that showed we're close to being on track to meet the target of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by 43% below 2005 levels by 2030. Are you now confident that we can achieve that target? I am, Michelle, I am. I mean, I'm not complacent about it. There's plenty of challenges, but I am confident, quite confident, that we can and we have to. Um so uh, 42% is good. Uh, it was 30% when we came to office. It lifted to 40% last year and up to 42% this year. So we're edging very close now to the 43 which is our target. And there are various government policies which have not yet been included, like hydrogen, Head Start, and any decarbonisation from the National Reconstruction Fund. So um, because they're, they're a bit hard to quantify at this point in their in their detailed design, um, but they would hit next year's t- uh, update. Um, so I am confident we can get to 43, but there's plenty of challenges along the way. We just can't take our foot off the accelerator. You've been very sceptical about nuclear power, and that's obviously going to be part of the opposition's climate policy. Why not lift the ban on nuclear and let the market make the decision? Is this just because of internal feelings in the Labor Party? You've said it would be a distraction to do that, but that's a bit hard to get your head around, I think. Well, well, I mean, firstly, of course, I mean, nuclear power for Australia is a fantasy wrapped in a delusion accompanied by a pipe dream. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, in terms of the legislative ban, which, of course, we didn't put in place, the Howard government put in place, I think two things, Michelle. 
I do believe it would be a massive distraction. It would take the time and the effort of the parliament. Um, uh, and uh, I just, it, we don't have time for that sort of distraction. It is, a dis- it is an attempt at a distraction. It is the deniers and delayers have now moved on from, by and large, straight climate change denial to coming up with distractions. That's what they do. They do it for a living. Let's, what can we do to distract now uh, from the need to move to renewables? Secondly, it would send a very confusing message to the market. I mean, um, government signals are really important. Now, nuclear energy is not commercial for Australia. It's not going to be commercial for Australia. The National Party has now admitted, you know, David Little Proud, in a moment of honesty, admitted that it couldn't happen until the late 2040s. We don't have time um, for the late 2040s. And even just not on emissions do we not have time. We have a reliability problem now. I mean, the biggest threat to reliability in our grid is coal-fired power stations uh, not working unexpectedly, and that's happening a lot. You know, AEMO and the governments of Australia deal a lot with coal-fired power stations, which are just not working all of a sudden. We've had two units of Araring, one of the biggest power stations in the country, out of action for several weeks, for example. Now, it's been okay because we've got very benign weather conditions, but it would be highly problematic if we didn't have benign conditions. Um, now, so we don't have time to muck around to the 2040s while we work out what sort of energy to introduce. We need more energy in the system now to replace the coal-fired power and buttress unexpected coal-fired power generation outages. We don't have time to wait to the 2040s. It's just a massive distraction, and I'm not going to waste the time on lifting a legislative bar, which is going to have absolutely no impact. Let's turn to COP, which you'll be departing for uh, in a few days. What will be your message to those who say that Australia should move faster on climate issues and should stop coal mining and even the gas extraction? How do you reconcile domestic progress with our role as one of the world's largest fossil fuel exporters? You know, Michelle, when I go to an international meeting, I've got to say the conversation is a lot different. Uh, to the domestic conversation. Those sorts of issues, frankly, are just seen very differently internationally. There's a, there's just a huge amount of respect for Australia's role now. Um, we are seen now as a very constructive partner. And ministers ministers understand that every government is dealing with a complex transition. They understand it because they're dealing with it themselves. You know, Michelle, there are two types of countries in the world. There's countries that export fossil fuels and there's countries that import fossil fuels. They're the only two types of countries at the moment. Um, you know, everybody either exports or imports the stuff. So other ministers understand that we're all dealing with a complexity. And, you know, I say to ministers who are importers of fossil fuels, I want to help you in your transition to net zero. I want to help you by exporting more renewables to you. Um, so this whole idea that Australia is somehow seen negatively is just not reflected in any conversation I have with international counterparts. Everybody's on the same page. You know, the outgoing New Zealand Minister for Climate Change said in, said recently, the Albanese government's done more on climate change in one year than the Ardern government did in five. And that's pretty reflective of the sort of feedback I get from my international colleagues. There will be a debated COP uh, about whether nations can agree to phase down or phase out fossil fuels. Does Australia have a firm position on So I certainly support a strengthening of global mitigation efforts, which is what that conversation is about. Um, You know, I'd be very pleased if we got um, to that level of the conversation. I do note that some countries already said they won't support the phase out of fossil fuels. Um, I chair the umbrella group of of ministers um, and, you know, I'll be seeking to get as common a position as as possible across the board on exactly what we should be arguing for, for a strengthening of mitigation language. I'll be meeting with them so that the umbrella group is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United 
United States, Israel, Ukraine, Norway. And I want to see that we come to that discussion with a good, strong position on mitigation. As I said, some countries have already said that they oppose the phase out of fossil fuels, including I've seen the African group of negotiating ministers. So I think that'll be a difficult conversation, but we'll be very constructively trying to find a way to strengthen the language. Now, the day one of COP, which is, of course, already underway, has seen a breakthrough agreement on a loss and damage fund to compensate poor states for the effect of climate change. Germany, America, the UK and others have made commitments already. Will Australia make a commitment to this? And can you give us any idea of the amount? So um, it's good. Uh, we've been we've been again very active in that conversation. We've had a representative on the committee, which has progressed this over the last twelve months, and uh, we've been talking to the Pacific. I've had you know some key red lines, in, including ensuring that the loss and damage fund would work for the Pacific. I've made some points about the donor base as well. Um, we have our focus has been until this point the Green Climate Fund and the Pacific Resilience Fund. We've announced that we will make contributions to both of those. I welcome the con- the, the progress on less and damage, but it's not the only conversation about global finance at the moment. Um, and I'll have more to say about how we'll interact with all the different funds, um, but particularly a focus on the Green Climate Fund and the uh, Pacific Resilience Fund as the work continues on getting the loss and damage fund up and running in the, the rural very well understood. I think there's general agreement that the world really isn't moving fast enough to deal with the threat of uh, global warming, the implications of it. What do you think can be achieved out of this particular COP meeting? Well, I want to see a big step forward. Now, um, at the last COP, we were just flat out, and it was a bit of a surprise to all of us, frankly, flat out me and like-minded ministers just defending what was agreed at Glasgow. Um, uh, we didn't really get the chance to argue for a big step forward, um, and we'll be arguing for a step forward. Having said that, Michelle, just to, you know, for the listeners, um, this is a globe, this is an international negotiation that works on consensus, i.e., you know, it doesn't take many countries to veto anything. It's pretty easy to block action. So if a listener is, says, well, I want to see this COP, you know, finally resolve what we're going to do on climate change and, you know, solve the problem and so take such a huge step forward that we don't need further international conversations, I think they're going to be disappointed. If a listener wants to see a step forward and a strengthening of efforts uh, and more work done, well, I'm hopeful and, you know, uh, perhaps even edging towards quite the confident that we might be able to pull that off. But there's a lot of work to go yet and a huge amount of effort. And um, this COP also meets in a difficult geopolitical environment um, which does infect the conversation a little. You know, the situation in Ukraine and the Middle East does just make these conversations just that much harder. Um, but anyway, we'll be in there arguing for a step forward and we'll see how we go. So do you think it'll be a more positive meeting than the last meeting? Well, I certainly hope so. And there are some signs, you know, the agreement, the Sunnylands agreement between China and the US is actually a big deal. Um, uh, that sort of augurs a little better um, compared to where we were at the G20 um, climate meeting, which I represented Australia, which was very disappointing, where some countries blocked action. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit hopeful, but uh, I'm, also, I'm also very realistic that I'll be spending some all-nighters uh, with my international colleagues, you know, really just trying to find a way through. Remembering uh, one earlier meeting, be very careful of the language. Just on, just on China's position, can you elaborate uh, a little on that? And should China be doing more on climate? Well, look, I mean, China is the world's biggest emitter. So, of course, we want them doing as much as possible. Now, um, 
you know, on the upside, they are also the world's biggest renewable energy investor. I mean, you know, they're putting in more renewable energy in the world in, 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 you know, each year than pretty much um, uh, the many other countries combined. So that's on the upside. Um, uh, obviously, their target is lower um, than uh, ours or other countries. So, you know, we obviously the more they can do. But basically, we need the world's biggest emitter um, really leaning in um, to the international conversations. And uh, it's no secret, you know, uh, they haven't uh, previously been as uh, leaning in as they, we'd, we would like them to be. I take the Sunnylands Agreement as uh, a big positive sign. I pay, you know, due credit for that uh, to them and the United States. That's a big deal. It does give me some hope. Um, but, you know, I'm also, I've been around long enough, Michelle, it's not my first rodeo. Uh, it's not done until it's done. Just finally, negotiators are hoping for an announcement on Australia's bid to host a, a joint Australia-Pacific COP meeting. Which year are we now aiming for and do you think we'll see this clarified? We're bidding for uh, 2026. Now, um, this is a very opaque, even as, a, even as, the, lead, as the lead bidder, um, I find the situation opaque, the process, because it's not sort of written down in the Constitution. Uh, and in fact, the world currently is dealing with the COP is currently dealing with who's going to host next year. 2024 hasn't been resolved. Again, because of that very complicated and difficult geopolitical situation that has very clearly infected the decision about who's going to host next year, which is not resolved. Um, so I imagine that'll be the main focus. Uh, the world will say, hang on, let's sort 2024 out before we sort 2026 out. Um, so look, we'll see how we go. Um, uh, it's a good opportunity for Australia. I'll be constructively talking to my colleagues about how we resolve the situation going forward. Um, but uh, you know, as as to any predictions about how it gets resolved, uh, I'm not in a position to make any. Chris Bowen, thanks very much for talking with us today. We hope you get a bit of sleep in Dubai during that COP meeting. Anyway, good trip. I just can't guarantee what time of day it'll be. It might be, <laughs> might be an early morning sleep after all night negotiations is my experience. But anyway, see how we go. Good travelling. Anyway, that's all for today's Politics Podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ben Roper. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.